Tonight, a special peril and promise report on the dangerous smoke blanketing the tri-state, ranking the city at number one for the worst air quality in the world. One of the country's top air pollution experts explains the alarming effects the smoke may be having on our health as Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, Dr. P. Roy Vagelos and Diana T. Vagelos, Estate of Worthington Mayo-Smith. Good evening and welcome to Metrofocus. I'm Jack Ford. Tonight, we bring you a special Pearl and Promise report on the dangerous burning smoke blanketing the tri-state area. This week, New York City ranked first among major cities for the worst air quality worldwide, as smoke from Canadian wildfires has been drifting in from hundreds of miles away, engulfing the tri-state area, casting that hazardous orange haze we've all seen in the sky. It is an unprecedented event. The smoke so thick at times, the FAA briefly suspended flights into LaGuardia, hundreds of flights at all area airports have been canceled, and thousands more across the country delayed. Several Broadway shows and sporting events have also been canceled. For many New Yorkers, though, the reaction has been more visceral. The sight of that eerie red haze choking the city, the smell of smoke permeating the air, raising concerns about how safe the air is to breathe, especially for the most vulnerable. Here to assess the condition and the threat is Dr. Dan Westervelt, an atmospheric scientist at the Columbia Climate School's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory and an air pollution advisor to the U.S. State Department. Doctor, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start off with the, the obvious first question, and that is how and why is this all happening? Well, the main culprit right now is a, a series of extreme fires uh, to the magnitudes that we haven't really seen before uh, in this part of the country uh, in Sort of central eastern Quebec. Uh, so that coupled with uh, some unfavorable wind conditions that have been blowing this smoke right into the tri-state area has, has led to the situation that we see right now. So let, let's talk bigger picture first, and then we'll get to some specifics. I, I mentioned in the introduction, uh, New York City, worst air quality of major cities in the world for the last day or so. Uh, air quality index, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, usually around 50. I think it got close to maybe exceeded 400 yesterday. Talk about what that means. We're talking about an air quality index numbers that high, and how historic is that? So the air quality index is kind of designed to be a publicly uh, public outreach type of tool that you know folks can use to make their decisions about planning their exercise and their time outdoors. And so this you know 400 level that you talked about is uh, something that we haven't seen at least in about 20 years in New York City. Um, it's pretty unprecedented. So when we look at at historically, we've seen it in the last 20 years or so, and we compare it, 
as I mentioned in the introduction, to, to the rest of the world. I think somebody said at one point in time, it's two or three times more than what the, the worst other case scenario in the world is. How alarming should that be for us? I think pretty alarming. Uh, anytime you see concentrations and levels this high, you can have health impacts on everybody, not just the vulnerable, not just people with heart and lung conditions, but even healthy people uh, can have get sick and have negative health impacts. So uh, the good news is, is that these kind of occurrences are rare in New York City. There's other parts of the world where this happens a lot more. Uh, and so we, we do have that on our side that this is projected to be a, a short occurrence right now. Let me follow up on something you said, and that is the health impact. And in a moment, I'll get to precautions we should be taking. But let's focus first on the health impact. Again, it's frightening looking, you know, this eerie red-orange haze out there uh, that you can smell the smoke. Talk about the impact. How does that get within our system, and what sort of impact can it have on various parts of the body? Yeah, so the main health culprit in smoke events like this is what we call fine particles. Um, and our research shows that these small microscopic particles that are kind of floating around in the smoke and we're breathing them in, they can penetrate deeply into our lungs. And not only do they get into the lungs, but most of them are small enough that they cross over into the bloodstream. Um, and so once they get into the bloodstream, you're talking about all kinds of negative effects on the circulatory system in addition to you know, the possible lung uh, issues. And so short-term type of things that people can feel from breathing this air in, you know, would be kind of typical respiratory and cardio uh, related issues. You might have some shortness of breath, coughing, wheezing, uh, sore throat, stinging of the eyes, et cetera. How about, how about long-term? You gave us a sense of, of short-term. Again, the forecasters are saying that perhaps in the next day or two, this should be diminishing and within three or four days diminishing significantly. But you mentioned short-term. What about long-term exposure within that time frame? Yeah. In the long-term, particles of this nature you know, are responsible for uh, millions of deaths globally around the year, premature deaths. Um, now, this is this sounds frightening and it, I think it should be, but it's important to note that this is relative to kind of a lifetime or a long, you know, many, many years of exposure to high levels of pollution. So in the, in the long term, um, New York City being relatively clean, otherwise uh, folks are, are going to be pretty protected. Uh, but certainly this, you know, short event that we're having for a few days is not going to uh, help out on the long term side either. Okay, so let's talk about then short-term precautions. Masks, are they effective? How should they be worn under what circumstances? Yeah, masking is a good option right now, um, these last few days and, and probably through tomorrow. Uh, you wanna make sure that you have a high efficiency filtering mask. So these are the N95s, if you can go back to sort of the pandemic times where we learned about all that, uh, the N95s, the KN95s. Uh, how should they be worn? Right now, I would recommend actually wearing them outside. Uh, we're in a situation that's sort of reverse of the pandemic where outdoor air is a little bit more dangerous for us than, than indoor air. Um, so I would recommend wearing them outside and recommend that they are well-fitting um, and don't have sort of any leaks or, or gaps 
What about your eyes? Is there something you can do? Is there something you should be doing if you are outside? Obviously, the first advice I'm, I'm sure, and you could have mentioned it, is don't go outside if you don't have to. Uh, but if you do, how about protecting the eyes? Should you be concerned about that? I wouldn't be as concerned about that necessarily. The the main route for these particles impacting our health is through breathing. So, you know, it, eyes. If you if you want to wear some eye protection. It certainly wouldn't hurt, but I, I, I think the key would be uh, the, the masking is, is the number one option. One of the interesting aspects of this is people have talked about, and, and I experienced myself, that you can actually taste the smoke, which is probably not, not surprising. But it has raised, it's raised another question, and that is with regard to the safety of our drinking water. If we're tasting it when we're walking around outside, what is it being absorbed into the drinking water sources? Is that a problem? What's the answer to that? So to, to my best knowledge, that is sort of not a very high concern for drinking water. I'm not saying that it doesn't really happen at all. Um, but the, the the way that our you know water filtration systems work in in New York City, and in fact, you know, most of the water in New York City comes from reservoirs, which are well maintained, well protected. Um, that is probably going to be a pretty minor effect on the water. Let's go back to our first question, which was which was why and how this is happening. And I, I've seen a number of people raise once again the question of, is this in, in some way connected to climate change? Is climate change in some fashion contributing to this particular event? How about that? I think it's likely that it has contributed to this particular event. However, I do need to be a little careful here and say that it is at this point in time very difficult to attribute any particular event that's currently still ongoing to climate change. Now, I think that research is going to be happening maybe even right now as we speak to try to make that connection quantitatively. Uh, but however, what we can say with a little more confidence is that uh, the symptoms of climate change that are well known and well studied from our research, things like hotter temperatures, uh, worsening droughts, changing precipitation patterns, drier soil, all of those things lead to uh, longer fire seasons, bigger burned areas, and therefore more smoke. So the connection is there. There's just a little bit of work that needs to be done to attribute specific events to climate change. We, we tend to, in order to help us to assess things, to compare instances to other instances. And I want to ask you, and I know you, you, you had um, some involvement in this, the, the uh, toxic train derailment that took place fairly recently uh, in Ohio. How would you compare the two? It's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I think in terms of sort of the, the magnitude of the crisis and, and, and that, I'd say they're pretty comparable. I mean, we uh, we have sort of a really high pollution problem right now, and there was similar one in East Palestine, uh, Ohio, during that train derailment. We're talking about different types of pollutants in this case. That's one way that they would differ. Um, in Here in the fires, we're mostly talking about fine particles. But in the train derailment case, it was a spillage of uh, a chemical that... Uh, basically evaporates off the surface and becomes this kind of noxious gas. So there's sort of a fundamental difference in the chemistry that, you know, this is gaseous pollution that was mostly affecting the folks in eastern Ohio versus what we're seeing now with the particle pollution. 
Got a last question here for you. Got about a minute or so. And, and, and that perhaps might be the most important question of all this. And that is how do we prevent situations like this from occurring in the future? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the million dollar question. It's, you know, how can we address climate change? How can we uh, reduce our emissions? And, you know, I think there's a lot of things that can be done at sort of the, the high level, policy level, decision maker level, uh, things like, you know, returning or uh, switching to cleaner energies, um, you know, electrification, um, technologies to, you know, reduce the carbon dioxide in the air, um, you know, all the the sort of laundry list of, of climate mitigation and climate solutions, uh, you know, are come into play here in terms of impacts on wildfires. Well, Dr. Dan Westervelt, you have been extraordinarily helpful and giving us some assistance in understanding what's happening here and perhaps more important, understanding what we should be doing to protect ourselves both now and in the future. Thanks so much for sharing your, your thoughts and, and your expertise with us. You take care now. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. The classic 1959 film, Some Like It Hot, is back. This time as a Broadway musical. The new version, which critics call a jubilant, crowd-pleasing musical comedy takes the story of two Prohibition-era musicians on the run from the mob who pose as women in an all-female traveling band. But it adds fabulous singing and dancing and some much more modern twists. Here's a preview. I hope you like your Broadway hot! Stay here. Chicago's too hot. You're right. Search every band. Every dance hall from here to Timbuktu. And when a saxophone starts a welling, I pray someone lends a hand before he breaks my aching heart in two. Somebody hot and that ain't bad. And we are delighted to have with us in our conversation tonight, the three stars of the show, part of a constellation of talent on that stage. Christian Borle, Jay Harrison G., and Adriana Hicks. Welcome to all of you. So delighted to have you joining us here. I want to start this conversation with a compliment. Probably not a bad way to start conversations, maybe especially with performers. The compliment is this. My wife and I saw the show a few weeks ago, and, and we are Broadway theater goers. We walked out and said to each other, one of the most enjoyable theater experiences we've ever had. So I thought that's a good way to start our conversation here. With that out there, and Christian, let me ask you the first question, if I can. Mention the introduction, iconic film, Some Like It Hot. In, in, in most surveys I've ever seen, in the very top of the list of the greatest comedy films ever. So... When you were first approached about this project, taking an iconic film and then bringing it to the Broadway stage and adding music and dancing and some twists, as I mentioned, what was your first reaction to it? <laughs> well, I, I think it was indeed AFI's number one comedy of all yeah. time. So yeah. no pressure whatsoever. <laughs> uh, I think that the main um, challenge and kind of thrill of even attempting to do it is to take a comedy that, you know, a lot of the material to our modern ear is a little dated a little mm -hmm. some of it is to be frank a little problematic mm -hmm. and to thrust it into a modern context 
And that seemed like a challenge worth going on with Casey Nicola, who is famous for creating some of the most famously hilarious musicals of all time, Book of Mormon, Spamalot, Something Rotten. Um, and so I felt like we were in good hands. And the material has great comedic bones as well. And it was just really exciting to work with Jay and Adrian on something fresh and new. Jay, uh, we, we talked about new twists and, and certainly your character. When you look at your character and Jerry and Daphne, um, epitomizes that. So talk a little bit from, from your perspective, again, about taking something that is a classic. As Christian said, it, some parts of it are dated and some are, are parts of it are troubling. And then making the changes, especially that your character makes in the show. It was quite a, a smooth process, I believe, for me, at least, in the sense of there was a lot of trust built in the room of creating and working with Casey Nicola and Matthew Lopez and Amber Ruffin um, and getting the collaborative effort to bring this old uh, material forward and it was wonderful to be able to trust each other to come into the room to create and to bring ourselves to the work. So it was awesome to authentically walk into the room, be myself, and have that infused into the work. Adriana, your, your role, if, I, and I suspect a lot of our viewers are familiar with some like it hot, but if not, uh, your role is, is sort of parallel to an iconic Marilyn Monroe role. Yeah. But, but once again, very different. And, and and similar to, to Jay's, talk about how your character and what you have done and what everybody else involved in the production has done to make those changes and to make it through a more modern lens. Yeah, it was really wonderful to have um, our director, Casey, and to have Matthew talk to me and say, first of all, Adriana, we don't want you to be Marilyn Monroe. We want you to be you. And that was honestly the launching pad for me to be able to develop a new take on sugar because you have a now this beautiful character who is set in the 1930s but she's a black woman now so wait a minute the stakes are different you know things shift there and it was such an honor to be able to still glean from Marilyn and to kind of see our similarities but also glean from other women as well too like Judy Garland and um, Josephine Baker and Lena Horn and I mean the list was endless for me so um, that process was truly a blessing because <laughs> I mean thinking about trying to fill the shoes of Marilyn Monroe there's there's no way that I could have done that but to be able to take this character and make it my own and to find the similarities between the two um, was really really helpful for me. You know, it's interesting. Again, I, I think this is a compliment to all of you is that I had seen the film before, uh, probably a couple of times. I'm very familiar with um, Tony Curtis, Jack Lemmon, Marilyn Monroe. You're essentially the ones who had, had the roles that you're doing now or similar roles. Almost from the beginning, I wasn't seeing any of you as them. You know, I, I wasn't saying, oh, yeah, you know, here, here's here's Christian doing Tony. It, that's, what's, what's, it, it wasn't. And I, I think that's, Adriana, you said probably what you wanted. Here's a quick question. Have Have... Any of you actually seen the movie before, Christian? Yes, all of you have. Yeah. All right. I, I I was wondering, did you watch it to prepare for this, or had you just seen it in the past? I watched it to prepare for it. Um, I've yeah. been with the project for me since 2019, and I had never seen the movie. Um, so before agreeing to do the reading at the time, I watched the movie as research mm -hmm. and. As Christian said before, definitely things that were problematic and needed to change 
but I was excited to see what work was going to be done. So uh, it was wonderful to see that classic be what it was and then the journey we've taken from me joining then uh, to where it is today. Let me talk a little about it, the energy on the stage, because I think that's one of the, the first things that grabs you. Um, I, the, the dancing is, it's breathtaking, especially the tap dance. There's an awful lot of that going on here. You know, I was a college football player, so I know a little bit about training, but I'm looking at all of you on the stage thinking, wow, what kind of training do you have to do to do this and to do it every, you know, we played football games once a week. You're doing this every night and twice on a couple of days. Christian, talk yeah. about that. You know, it's really, uh, it helps to have decades of experience so that your body is used to that schedule. Um, and, you know, we as uh, theater performers aim for eight o'clock at night. So our entire day is geared toward our body being prepared at that hour. And Jay and I always laugh, you know, we have our moments right before the show where we get to check in with each other. And one of our mantras is one foot in front of the other because the show is such a train ride, literally and figuratively. Um, that all you have to do is begin. And we have this, um, our hardest number, or at least I'll speak for myself, is um, can't have me if you don't have him, which is our big tap mm -hmm. duo that we do mm -hmm. to try to get a job at the Cheetah Club. Mm -hmm. And it just is the greatest launch in the world. Everything after that is like dessert. So like we finish literally like in the cliche, like, hey, hey. <laughs> and then once you catch your breath, you just kind of go along for the rest of the ride. That's yeah. good exercise. <laughs> One foot after another is a pretty good mantra for pretty much anything you want to do in your life. I That's think exactly we, right. we can adapt that. Adrian, I saw you saying one time that you it's the, for you being in this is like a, a kid playing in a sandbox. Yeah. <laughs> How do you mean? How do you mean? It, it is because I'm working with um, adult kids almost. You know, I love I love being around Casey Nicola um, so much because he helped me to tap into my inner child um, and just his freedom and his expression with building something was one of the best experiences of my life. That's why I say it's like that. Cause he, <laughs> he reminds me of being like a dad where he would like, you know, he looks after me and just like shelter and, and um, providing guidance um, in the most beautiful way, as well as <laughs> we would talk about things like, oh, do you love Disney World? I love Disney World. Do you like, <laughs> like, what are the fun things that you like to do? So that uh, youthful energy um, that we all somewhat bring to the stage is what I mean by that. Mm. I, I talked about from the very beginning how this is just, you know, Broadway musical theater at its very best, uh, but with a focus on on things that are important today. If if and I, I jotted down some notes after I saw it in, in terms of themes. And again, look, I, I want people to understand you're going to have fun if you come to this show, but you're going to think about some things afterwards. And and a couple of things I wrote down. And and, and Jay, let me ask you this. I, I I said I said freedom, authenticity, journey. Does that work, do you think? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, this is a, a, a story of adventure, of, of finding freedom, of finding authenticity. Um, these people are are on, on separate journeys, but they find themselves in such beautiful ways. Um, and we can learn that in life to allow circumstances to break us free of our own limits, labels, and boundaries. Um, and you can find a fuller, more deeper version of the human being that's possible. So, yeah. That's beautiful. And it's, it, it, it's certainly a, a, a wonderful way to put all of this. Um, it, I, I know your performance and I know you do this for a living and you're all veterans. You've had all have had great success. 
in, in all areas of your performances. It looks, it looks to us like you're really having fun too. Again, it's a lot of work. <laughs> and I would suspect that maybe not every production that you've been in in your lives has been always fun, uh, you know, to some extent. It, it, it's this fun. Adrian, I'm going to come back to you. I'll, I'll come back to you, Adrian, because you talked about in a in a kid in a sandbox. But mm. again, this is it's a lot of work. You know, people who don't who don't see behind the stage don't realize how much work this is. But it, does this remain for you, night in, night out, afternoon, afternoon, out, uh, a fun performance? It does, um, because it's a comedy. It's a classic musical theater comedy that um, leaves people feeling better about living and uh i mean it helps to work with some of my amazing co-stars who you know they make me laugh every single day and we we all come together and and that's our way of tapping in to make sure that we're all one that we know what we're going to do and the work is the work um we understand what this business takes and and um it's lovely to have a group of people that understand that but also are adults about that while being kids you know <laughs> while giving space to um create like we used to do when we were younger yep i'm gonna I, we could talk for hours about this unfortunately we have the, the the tyranny of time involved here and stuff so christian i'm gonna give you the last question if i can um what are you all, and I'll let you speak for everybody, but what are you hopeful that when people walk out of this theater, out of the Schubert Theater, what, what are you hopeful that they're going to take with them from this show? One of the great things about doing musical comedy is that you make a contract with the audience. Like you walk in, you're going to hear great music, you're going to hear incredible voices, and you're going to see some fantastic dancing. But just what is such a relief after the two year hiccup that we had of not being able to work on stage is to see people collectively laughing is healing. So you have that aspect of it. And the laughs build and build and build over the course of the show as they get to know these characters, as they get to care about these characters and these performers. And so you have this almost like living beast that is laughing so hard that they look at each other and say, I can't believe. And to, I'm, I, I don't mean to be immodest about it. We, we mm -hmm. have structured it that way, you know, so that the, the laughs build. But then there's this, I think, lovely sucker punch of message and humanity mm -hmm. behind the story that leaves people. I think their, their right. worlds are kind of turned upside down by the, the humanity of it all. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.